Hello, beautiful people. This is episode two of Bands and Motivation. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone, except those leaving comments like, may God see you through under Hush Puppy's pictures. If you know who Hush Puppy is, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know who Hush Puppy is, sit tight. Either way, you're in for a treat. How is everyone's week going? How has your week been? How has the past few days been? Hope you are keeping sane and protecting your mental health. This is so, so, so important. In this last week alone, I have had about five or six people reach out to me or people that have reached out to and have complained about their mental health. To some, it was already expected because it's an ongoing thing. To others, it was an unpleasant surprise. Literally just felt like they got hit by a ton of bricks because they have never really paid attention to their mental health. You've always thought they were strong people. And to their surprise, they were having breakdowns. They were having episodes. So please, please, and please, guys, make sure that you are taking care of your mental health. They have three parts of our existence, mind, body, and our soul. We take care of our bodies. We talk about diet. We talk about what we eat. We talk about working out. We talk about waist trainers. We talk about liposuction and whatever else it is that you do to take care of your body. That part is covered. We talk about your soul, your religion, your faith, church, mosque, synagogue, you read your Bible, you go to the mosque, you pray, you fast, all of that good stuff. You take care of your soul. What about your mind? Most people don't take care of their mind. We neglect to take care of our mind. We're not raised to even consider the fact that our mind needs to be taken care of. So as adults, as responsible people, as people who are unlearning, a lot of the crap that you learned growing up or that you inherited, this is one of the facets that you need to consider and take care of. What makes you tick? What makes you thrive? What stresses you out? Think about some kind of litmus test. What is your base? If you know your base, then you know when things are going good, so positive side, and you know when things are going bad, negative side. But you have to know what your base is. Where are you functioning? Just at okay, just at regular, just at Nothing is wrong, but everything is not great. That is a project for you to do if you already have not. Figure out what your litmus test is. That way you can know what your triggers are. That way you can know when you're doing well. That way you can tell when you begin to spiral and you can get ahead of things pretty much. Quick recap of my week. Remember how last week I was ginger towards the end? You know, I was like, July 1st, this is my new year. Happy New Year, guys. We're starting over. I didn't know that Lucifer and his co-workers were planning for me that very day. Honestly, guys, I recorded Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. Went to sleep really late. Supposed to help out a friend that day with some catering and cooking stuff. And I left my house thinking, okay, I'll be gone for a few hours. Once I come back, I'll edit the podcast. I'll put it out. Everything is great. Everything nice. Everything's too. Unfortunately for me, Lucifer was waiting for me on the road. Got to my, ran some few errands, got to my friend's place and went in, helped out, helped out, helped out. I needed to go to the post office and about two hours later, I came back down, got in my car, started the car, started and then it vibrated a little bit and went off. I was like, hmm, okay, maybe I started it too quickly or I don't know, it's a fluke. Let me try this again. Started again, the car started, did a little bit of Harlem shake went off. I was like, hmm, you know what? Third time is the charm. I'm going to do this again. Started this car for the third time. Guys, it started, did the exact same thing, vibrated a little bit and went off. I was like, whoa, okay. I think I'm in trouble. 
And if you know anything about when your car starts acting up, most times, in fact, all the time, it's never a good sign. It's never a good sign when your car is acting up. When your car is not starting, it's never a good sign. But sometimes it's something minor, like you forgot to maybe put gas or your oil is low or there's no water or, you know, other car things. I'm not a car expert. So I just said the first things that came to my mind as examples. Anyway, is that one of those little things or it's something major where you have to spend, I don't know, $5,000, donate one of your kidneys, give blood, probably have your plasma checked for you to get it fixed up and running. It's usually a lot of money because labor is expensive, you know, in the Western world. So my mind started racing. I'm like, this is not the time for this. I don't have money to spend on car or fix anything. Literally just left my house. Everything was fine. I need to go to the post office. What is all this crap? So I started panicking a little bit, but going to the post office was like really urgent because they were going to close, of course. So I told my friend, okay, please let me use your car. Go to the post office, do what I need to do. Come back, I'll do with this. Did that, came back. Made a call to my friend, asked for help. Hey, my car's not starting. What do you think? Okay, let me listen to the car. Tried a few things here, there. Opened the bonnet. Is this there? Is that there? Is this working? Is that working? Did you change your oil recently? I'm like, yes, 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 yes. I'm not great at cars, but at least, you know, the everyday things that the car needs to function, I'm doing. I haven't been driving pretty much anywhere in the last three months or four months. Just randomly go to the grocery store here, there. So there shouldn't be that much wear and tear on the car. Plus, I've had the oil changed, you know, ending of May, beginning of June, one of the above. Anyway, that wasn't the fix. I was like, okay, cool. Went back upstairs to my friend's, you know, apartment. We started talking. Okay, let's see if you can get a mechanic. Let's see how you can figure it out. Called another friend at some point to come over and see if they could check it out, you know, because yes, cliche guys probably know usually more than girls about cars. So tried that out. He was like, mm, might be the fuel pump. Not sure, but the circuit is not complete. You know, the car is getting, you know, power, but something is not getting to the engine or whatever it needs to. That's why it's starting and cutting off. I'm like, okay, cool. I mean, all I got from that is there's a problem. Might be a big problem, might be a small problem, but there's a problem. Now, remember that I'm not at home. So I started thinking, okay, I'm not that close to home. How am I going to get home? What am I going to do with the car or about the car? My friend has suggested that I start the car, put it in neutral, keep tapping on the accelerator and not take my leg off that so the car won't stop. I was like, well, that's possible. But what happens every time I get to a stop sign or I get to a traffic light? I'm going to be messed up. And he said, well, that's the thing. You have, it's not easy, but you have to keep, even when you put your leg on the brake, keep tapping on the accelerator so the engine never dies. I'm like, the odds of me doing that for the, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes drive home is really low. At some point, I'm going to either forget or regardless of whatever this juggling act I'm doing, Engine is still going to go off. I'm going to be stuck in the middle of the road and it's going to be a mess. So I'd rather not move the car from a parking lot where it is stationary and secure than start doing that and get in trouble. So he said, well, also it might be the heat. Maybe just leave it for a little bit, see if it will cool off. Start it again when it's like evening time. Problem might be fixed. It's like, okay, cool. Sounds good to me. That would be the ideal situation. So go back inside, try to relax, eat, talk, you know, doing other things. My friend has said, well, if the car doesn't start, I'll drop you off at home. And whenever you want to come back and fix it or do whatever, I'll pick you back up. Cool. So I chilling, waiting. So I was getting a little bit to evening, 
tried it again. Of course, it didn't work. And then, as I said, another friend came over, checked it out, still nothing. I was like, hmm, okay, at this point, panicking, but not really. Friend was like, okay, whenever you're ready, I'll take you home. Great. Um, it's a long journey. Let me go to the bathroom before we leave. Go to the bathroom, and all of a sudden, I start having these like straight from hell cramps. Literally, a ton of bricks just hit me, came from nowhere. I'm not even kidding. I was like, hmm, ouch, okay. And then it just gets progressively worse, progressively worse. It was so bad. Like I was doubled over and literally just, I was screaming in my head, but opening my mouth, nothing was coming out. It was that bad. My friend was in the living room. I couldn't even scream or shout like, hey, I'm here. I need help. Rescue me. I'm dying. All kinds of thoughts. You guys don't even understand. I started going through my mind. I'm like, oh my God, what if something happened? And I'm having like some kind of internal bleeding. And what if I punctured something? And no reason, no basis for any of those things. I was like, maybe it's fibroids and maybe I'm bleeding out, but I didn't even know I had fibroids. No idea, like I said, where all these thoughts were coming from. I just knew that this thing was bad and I felt like I was dying. Now at that point, all I could think was, what in the hell is going on? This is July 1st, literally a few hours ago. I was so gingered. I was so excited. I was so positive. And look at what's happening now. Literally, like single-handedly, this might be the worst day that I have had this year. That's not the plan. That's not how it's supposed to go. And I'm a Christian. So when things happen, I pray, I commune with God, I talk to God and so on and so forth. But I was in such a state that I couldn't even bring out any prayer. This wasn't even the time for, I bind you devil, I cast you Satan, get thee behind me, I'm stronger than you. I was literally just helpless. And all I could say was, God, I started this day and this month so positively. Please don't fall my hand. If you don't know what don't fall my hand means, it means don't disappoint me. It's African slash Nigerian slang. So I was like, God, please don't fall my hand. I'm already expecting this to be, you know, a good time. I kind of already started on negative. So one thing led to another. A few hours later, somehow or the other, I made it out of the bathroom, crawled into bed, slept off somehow. And then woke up a few hours later. I was still alive. I'm like, wow, great. Okay, cool. We're still here. Thank God I didn't die. Pain has subsided. It was like 2 a.m. Obviously, I couldn't go home and had to spend the night. Next morning, a mobile mechanic came over, told me like the problem wasn't that huge. Just need to go to AutoZone, buy like a cap for my air filter, pump, not pump, air filter pipe. Okay, cool. Sounds good. And as we're about to go, he's like, hmm, in case we can't find the cover, if they don't sell the cover alone, and the pipe is too expensive, I can get some other parts and kind of construct something that would replace this part. Almost like kind of build it out. So let's just take out the entire thing so that when we get there, if we don't find what we want already, I don't need to start trying to come back to get the dimensions and all those details. I was like, sounds good to me. On one hand, to be honest, I was like, hmm, a lot of times these mechanics are shady. They do a lot of extra work that you don't need so they can charge you. So I'm thinking, I hope he's not just taking something apart so he can add to the cost because he'll be like, I took something apart. You know, that's time, that's labor. I had to put it back, you know, good stuff. But at that point, I was tired. I was drained. I was still, you know, happy that I was alive. So I was like, okay, whatever. It works for me. So as he took it out, he started laughing. I'm like, oh, okay, share the joke. And he picked up the cover that was actually missing that we wanted to go to AutoZone to get. And he was like, it was just hanging you know, somewhere in the mix. I was like, wait, what? He said, yeah, you're very lucky that whenever I did my, uh, change my air filter, they probably didn't put it on right. And obviously as I've been driving, it's been on screen, on screen, on screen, and probably popped off. And when it popped, I probably thought I hit a speed bump. And 
usually it would fall, you know, directly through the car onto the road. But by God's grace, it didn't. It was just hanging in there. I was like, oh my God, thank you, Jesus. Angel singing. Wow, look at that. God didn't fall my hand. July is going to be great after all. Anyway, he just put the cover back on. I started the car. I started. Literally, that was it. So I was really excited because, yes, I still had to pay because obviously he came, you know, to me, mobile mechanic and, you know, diagnosing the problem, all of that. Like minimal cost, to be honest. But I was so, so, so excited because that could have been a, oh, $4,000. Oh, okay. Go into that room. We'll take out your kidneys, sew you back up, take some blood, and then you're free to go. So I was excited about that. I say all this to say, guys, it was hectic. I was losing it. It was what is going on, what is going on, what is going on. But it was beyond my control. The cramps were beyond my control. The car thing was beyond my control. There really was not anything that I could do. So in life, a lot of times things happen that are beyond your control that you cannot do anything about. And we get worked up. I did get worked up, right? I'm only saying this now because it's after the fact. When it was happening, you couldn't tell me anything. Because my friend was trying to say, oh, it'll be cool. We'll just get a mobile mechanic. I'm like, sis, <laughs> are you really understanding what is going on? This could be a major problem. But after the fact, of course, I could look back and say, what, what was really the point of worrying? What was really the point of stressing? Whether I stressed or not, it didn't change anything. What was going to happen was going to happen. When the cramps were done, they were done. Like when it was the time for it to expire, it stopped. I didn't even have to take anything. She gave me painkillers, but... I was in so much pain, I couldn't even actually physically get up to try and take it or even open my mouth or so, you know, naturally it just stopped. Same thing with the car. I didn't know the entire time that what the solution to the problem was, was right there. Because of course, I'm not a mechanic. I'm not a professional. I did open the bonnet, but didn't see all this, didn't notice all this. So my encouragement with that would be when you're going through a situation where you have a problem, where you have an issue reach out to somebody who can help. In this case, it was a mechanic, somebody who could help, who is a professional. As soon as he came, literally, I tell you guys, it wasn't even five minutes. He already diagnosed what the problem was. I was like, hmm, either he's really good or this guy's about to screw me over. It turned out he was really good. If you're having issues with your mental health, if you're struggling, if you're, don't try to be, oh, I'm so cool. I'm so, I'm a G. I can figure this out. I'm strong. Black people don't have mental health issues. You know, my family is rich, so I can't be seen being weak doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from, your mental health could be struggling, reach out to a professional. That's what they're trained to do. They're trained to help. Of course, pray. Of course, you know, your faith, your religion is important, but you also need the help of a professional. So reach out, get help, let them see you. They know what to do. They know what to say. They know how to set you on the right path. They know how to correct whatever is wrong. They know how to help you de-stress, decompress, and just get in the right frame of mind. That's my little spiel about mental health, guys. Super, super, super important. If your mental health is not intact, nothing else will really work out for you. That's the truth. You'll break down, you become a mess. You'll start misbehaving at work. You start doing crap. You'll get fired. You'll get home. You'll be angry at everybody at home. You won't have a job. You won't be able to pay your bills. If you can't pay your bills, your electricity is going to get cut off. You're going to be kicked out of your home. You're going to lose your car. And it spirals down from there. Yes, I'm being dramatic, but it could happen. I hope it doesn't happen to you. In fact, I pray it doesn't happen to you. My point being, your mind is very important. You need to keep your mind sane. You need to protect your space. Be careful of who is coming in. Be careful of what you're listening to, what you're watching, what you're ingesting, what you're reading. Whatever you put in is what is going to come out. 
So if you put in garbage, garbage is going to come out. If you put in uplifting things, things that make you grow, things that you have learned that are positive, that is what is going to come out. Let me tell you something. I do not watch the news, not because I'm ignorant or I don't care about information. If you know me personally, you know I am an information junkie. If Google was to give its AI an actual human name, that name should be Iyamide or Stephanie. I kid you not. I am always on Google researching stuff, information. If you tell me something, I don't take it at face value. I always go research. It can be anything even as random as I'm watching a movie. Who is this actor? What is he about? What is she about? Actress. I go on Google. I search it. If we're talking about news, if we're talking about sports, if we're talking about weather, whatever it is, I like to know. I like to search. I like to find out. Knowledge is power. But when it comes to the news, there's just so much going on that it's like your brain is taking a beating and you just don't know. So yes, I do know what's happening in the news as far as I get updates on my phone and I'll, you know, browse some certain, maybe like Google homepage has like highlights of the news. So I have an idea, right? What's going on? Some stories will pique my interest. I'll look deeper into them. But I don't sit down, put on, you know, I don't want to call any specific um, TV stations or radio stations. But you know what I mean? They keep over and over and over and over the same thing, over and over and over the same thing. Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And yes, it is the reality. There are all these things going on, but you don't have to just sit down, feed your soul, feed your mind, feed your spirit with that continuously. Take a break. Do you want to know what's going on? Yes. Do you want to be bombarded and lose your sanity? No. So you have to find that perfect middle ground. And that's what I was talking about, the litmus test. You have to know yourself and know what the balance is for you. Know what normal is for you so that when things start getting out of hand in a negative way, you already know, you can already catch it. You can know what to cut off. You can know what to do more of. That's my little two cents. Well, it's been almost 20 minutes, so I guess it's not so little. The summary of all this is your mind is important. You need to protect it. You need to make sure it is safe. You need to make sure it is secure. The same way you protect your physical property, your car, your house, your bank account information, your jewelry, any other thing that you think is important to you, think about how much more important your mind is. You take care of your body, you take care of your soul, you need to take care of your mind as well. So last week, I talked about serial monogamous. This week, the internet has brought us another one. Not to say these are new terms, I guess I'm just finding out, you might already know. But this one is called cushioning. So when you think cushion, couch, it means like padding yourself. This is a relationship term, by the way. It means padding yourself against what you perceive as impending hurt. So for example, you were in a relationship, the relationship didn't end well. Time passes, you meet somebody else. You guys start talking. You want to figure out if you're going to date. The person likes you, you like the person, everything seems to be going well. But because of your past experience, you're like, hmm, what if this person disappoints me? Then I'll be back at the same point, right? I'll be the fool again. I'm not going to let that happen. So you're talking to other people, right? Those other people are the cushion so that if this main person disappoints you, you have other people to fall back on. So the whole idea is that the pain and the torture and the torment of a breakup or a failed relationship won't be as bad because you never really put all your eggs in one basket. And I'm doing those hand air quotations. That's the whole idea behind it. It's interesting in one form. As a human being, most people have been through some kind of heartbreak or the other. So you understand the general vague concept. But when it boils down to it, I'm sorry, it's a no for me. It doesn't make any sense. 
yes, when you first meet somebody, you guys are just talking, being cordial, friendly, getting to know each other. You don't really owe the person anything. The person doesn't owe you anything. If you're talking to other people, if you're trying to get to know other people, things are casual. That's not an issue. The moment you decide, okay, I, like, I really like this person. That person decides, I really like you too. Let's see how we can come together, see what can work out. We have the same values. I enjoy spending time with you. You make me feel happy, good, whatever the case may be. Let's give this a try. At that moment, to me, you're entering into an agreement with somebody, meaning every other person. Once again, this is talking about a monogamous relationship where two people are only supposed to be dating each other, right? You're entering into an agreement saying, let's focus on this thing. Let's put our time, our effort, our energy into this, see where it leads. If it leads somewhere to marriage, great. If it doesn't, oh well. Once you agree to do that, why do you still need any kind of cushioning? Because in your mind, you have a plan B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way to Z. How serious are you really going to take that relationship? How much effort are you really going to put into it? Every time you hit a speed bump, are you going to slow down and try and get over the speed bump? Or are you going to just reverse and, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore? Because you have all those other people who are taking your time, who are taking your efforts, who are giving you that, I don't know if the word is comfort in, this person can never mess me up, so I really don't care. Some people do this while they're in a relationship, right? And as the relationship gets more serious, they now begin to let go of those cushions. Some other people apparently still carry those cushions into their marriage. So you date somebody for a few months or a few years. They pass all the tests for the most part, because if not, why would you be getting married to them, right? And you go into a marriage with them and you still have that same mentality. You're still like, what if this person disappoints me and then we end up having to get a divorce? I'm not going to do that to myself. I'm still going to keep my cushion. It's absurd. The problem is, which is what I was trying to explain last week, when you have a pattern or when you're used to something, it's not because you got married that that pattern is just going to fall off. Not because you signed papers or you invited people to dance and eat. All of a sudden, you're going to transform into this. Oh, I'm a super wife. I'm a super husband. These are things the husband or wife should do. I'm now doing them. No. Those habits are still going to be with you. You're still going to be used to them. Your frame of mind, your thought process is still going to be the same until something happens that changes that. So if you're not comfortable, if you don't feel that somebody is worth taking the risk, because that's what love and relationships are about. This person might hurt me or this might be the best time or thing that ever happened to me. It's taking the risk. And of course, in any risk, even a financial risk, it should be a calculated risk. You've weighed the pros, you've weighed the cons, the pros outweigh the cons. So you're willing to take that risk and see what happens because it might work out. And if it does, it will be great. If that person is not worth the risk, if you're not in the frame of mind, if you're still hurt from past experiences, if there are things they have done that are a red flag that are making you suspicious and you can't fully trust them or you don't believe them when they say things, you can't rely on their word, then please, please, and please don't bother yourself. Don't even start. Don't even go into that relationship. Don't even just be friends with that person. That's the best thing you can do. Keep observing them. Keep hanging out with them. Keep spending time with them. If you want to, as a friend, that way you get to know them better without the pressures of, because I'm trying to be in a relationship, this person is trying to impress me. See what I mean? Then when you get to the point where you're like, oh, you know what? This person is actually as horrible as I thought. Thank God I didn't waste my time. You bounce. If though the person turns out to be a great person, oh, they're even funnier than I thought. They're very kind. They're very perceptive. I saw the way they handled this. I like the way they did that then you might ease up a bit and feel more relaxed and go into it. Disclaimer, of course, anybody can pretend for however long, right? Even if you go this route, somebody can still pretend. They can still just be a horrible person. You can still end up 
dating them or getting married to them. They can be abusive. They can be just a wretched person. This is true. But it's part of the risk that you're taking. That's the bottom line. You're taking a risk. Either you're ready to take the risk or you're not. That whole idea of I'm stretching my fingers into every nook and cranny just to stabilize myself. You know, there's this cushion that think about when, you know, how in the movies, when someone wants to jump, let's say from a roof or sometimes there's a fire and there's no way for the fire department to get into that place. And they say, oh, just jump, just jump. They usually put something on the floor, you know, like uh, looks like an air mattress or some kind of tarp that they hold so that when you fall, it will break your fall. That's exactly what this cushioning of a thing is. When someone disappoints you, you have somebody else that will break that fall, right? Somebody else that will say, hey, what's up, cutie? Hey, handsome. How's your day going? Have you eaten? Do you want to hang out? Let's go to the movies. Something to distract you. But if you really think about it, there's no amount of distraction that would take away from the truth of if you're actually hurt, you're hurt. There's, I don't know how else to put it. So I find that term very interesting. I don't know what the origin is. I just read about it and I tried to like look up more instances. And of course, just plain English, I knew what it meant. And when I thought about it, I'm like, to be honest or to be fair, I do know people who have expressed that, like, I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket. I'm not going to have faith in, you know, this person. What if they disappoint me? How do I know they're not doing this or doing that? Or I'm not going to be the fool. I didn't know there was a term for it. I didn't know there was a, you know, way that it was described or already in the relationship dictionary. Anyway, I thought I would discuss that with you guys and see what you think. Do you agree with cushioning? Do you believe in it? Have you heard about it before? Have you practiced it? Are you for or against it? Don't forget, guys, I am on Instagram at Bands and Motivation at B-A-N-T-S-A-N-D-M-O-T-I-V-A-T-I-O-N. I would like us to continue the conversation there on this particular topic. Another interesting one I heard, which of course, I know what it is in actual when it's worked out. But once again, I didn't know what the name or the term was. And it is called double consciousness. Very interesting. Double consciousness. So obviously consciousness means to be aware. You know, you're aware of what's going on. This one is called double consciousness. So clearly, you know, two parts to it. And I heard this on one of these town hall talks that some black people were having. And they were talking about being black in the workplace. and how to adapt, how to thrive, how to survive, how stressful it is in light of, you know, Black Lives Matter movement. That's what, why the talk was happening. So double consciousness, they said, is a code switch. So this is for black people. It's a code switch to white voice and white topics while you're at work or while you're around white people to make them feel more comfortable or for you to fit in. So pretty much we have the way that we talk when we're with our friends and with our family, people that we're used to, people that we grew up with. But when you come around, and I'm giving this exactly the way it was said on that show, on that talk, or in that town hall. But now me dissecting it, it's not necessarily a white versus black thing. For example, I was not raised here in the United States. I grew up in Nigeria. We know how we talk. We have slangs. We have pidgin English. We have local dialects and so on and so forth. When I moved here to go to college, obviously, a lot of times you would try and relate with people or talk to people. And I think I'm quite articulate, so it wasn't necessarily a huge problem. But there will be words that I say that are different. For example, in Nigeria, the back of the car is the boot. Here, it's the trunk. So just little things like that. And obviously, you have an accent type thing. So 
as time progresses, when you want to talk to professors, when you want to talk to classmates, you find yourself adopting, quote unquote, an American accent, if I'll call it that. You're putting on an accent to mimic the people you are talking to because it makes it easier for them to understand you. And sometimes you just don't want to answer questions about where are you from? How did you get here? Do you guys wear clothes? I heard you ride on elephants to school. And these are true. People actually asked me these things when I was a freshman in college. So you find yourself, you know, adapting to them, right? Just so it's easier. Communication is easier. They understand you, so on and so forth. That's a parallel to what these people are saying. So this is my experience as a Nigerian in America. And that was to anybody, right? Black or white, because in general, an American accent is different from a Nigerian accent. But now black people are saying there is black speak and there is white speak. So there are ways that they talk and there are slangs and expressions that they use that black people don't use. And so they have to emulate that or adopt that when they're talking to white people at work. And I agree, that is true. So apart from talking like them, as far as maybe for me, the accent, for people who are already born and raised in the United States, there are also topics and gestures and mannerisms and expressions that they don't ordinarily use at home, but to fit in at work, they have to adopt. So it might be things that they do for fun, for example, not to say black people don't go fishing, but mostly white people go fishing, like maybe skiing, things like that, that traditionally, or for the most part, black people, especially in the South, don't do, they don't go skiing for the most part. So if you're at work and you're talking to people, your bosses, your coworkers, your team members, you know, you're back on Monday, it's been a weekend. Everyone is like, how was your weekend? What did you do? You know, you have to, those topics that are interesting or important to them, you find yourself researching those things or trying to get to know more about those things just so that when they try and make those conversations, you can meet up or you can match up or you can fit in. Because sometimes it will be at a work retreat or a work like happy hour or at a meeting. So you have to be involved. You can't just sit there and just not pay attention to whatever is going on. So yeah, that's what double consciousness is. And I found it interesting because obviously I've lived that, like I said, when I moved from a different country and then going into the workforce, you know, on another level. But I didn't know that it was actually a term, double consciousness. So my question is, do you guys agree with that? I agree with that, like I said, 100% because I've lived it. But do you guys agree with that 100%? What do you think? Should black people be trying to fit in? Should they be trying to adopt a different tone, adopt different expressions, show interest in topics that ordinarily they probably don't care about or participate in? Or should they just, who cares, let everybody stay on their own side of the table, I'll focus on what's important to me, my upbringing, my background, and you focus on what's important to you, your upbringing, your background. If you want to know more about me, you try and convert to my own way of speaking, my own expressions, things that concern me. What do you guys think? about that? How do you guys think this should play out in light of all the Black Lives Matter protests and everything else going on? Do you think that this is a problem? Do you think that Black people repetitively trying to fit in with quote-unquote what white people have said to be the standard, do you think that is part of the problem? How should this be resolved, right? Like I said, for me, when you're Rome, act like the Romans. So because I was in another person's country, I had to adapt to, you know, what was going on here. Thankfully, in Nigeria, we speak English. My parents sent me to really good schools, thankfully. So I didn't have any problem as far as English or communicating, reading, writing, all of that. 
The only thing was just certain ways that I would pronounce words or expressions that I would use. Let me tell you guys a funny story. When I was a freshman, I was taking a, some introduction to religion or world religions course. Professor was really nice, very interesting. We were talking about parallels between Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all the things they have in common, and then at what points they start to separate or differ in their beliefs. And the first time we're going to have a test, the professor was like, okay, guys, you know, test next um, class, bring your blue books, um, don't bring any extra materials, turn your phones off, all the regular rules, bring a pencil, bring a pen, bring a scantron. I was like, okay, cool. I knew what a scantron was. I could not for the life of me figure out what a blue book was. I was like, what, what is that? <laughs> I had no idea. But I was embarrassed because everybody just seemed to know what a blue book was. And it was one of those classes that generally freshmen, because it was like a hundred level class, but I'm thinking it was a general education course. So of course there would probably be people who were maybe seniors or juniors or sophomores who were just now taking that course. But for the most part, most people there were freshmen. And nobody raised up their hand to say, oh, what is a blue book? I was like, hmm, that means a blue book is something everybody knows or should know. I don't want to, you know, fall my own hand by asking what is a blue book. So I actually waited towards the end of the class because I wanted to ask. I said, no, 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 no. I have to figure this out. So I left the class. I was walking. I kept thinking, who would I ask what a blue book is? This is embarrassing. So I said, okay, I'll go to the school bookstore and of course, probably see what a blue book is and just buy it and problem solved. So I walked to the school bookstore. I started walking around. I didn't see any sign that says blue book. I didn't, you know, there was nothing glaring of, oh, wow, I've been saved. I was like, oh, this sucks. So I was standing around, walking around, walking around, walking around. And one of the guys who worked there came up to me. I said, oh, hey, what's up? You know, how are you doing? Can I help you with anything? I said, yeah, I'm trying to buy a blue book. I don't know where I can find a blue book. So he looked at me and he was like, it's right in front of you. And I looked, I'm like, all I see are these like small, I would say like almost like a notebook, but it's not that thick. It's just a little, probably like sheets of paper, but already in a little booklet. That's what it is, a booklet. He was like, that's it right there in front of you. I was like, that's a blue book? He said, yeah, it's just called that because they're blue. The cover, the back thing, the wrap or whatever is blue, but it's just a booklet that's empty sheets that you take into your exam. So that way, when you have like um, questions that you have to write out or theory questions, you write it in there. And on the front, you can write like your name, student ID number, all that good stuff. It just helps the professor have everything together in one place, as opposed to you keep asking for sheets of paper. You guys, I was red in the face. So, wow, really? That's, that's all? That's all? So he kind of laughed. I guess he figured I didn't know. He was like, that's fine. We get that all the time. A lot of freshmen, of course, they don't know what a blue book is. I was like, oh, wow, thank you. Turned out to be, I think, like 69 cents. And I think I got like two or three paid and I left. But that was such an interesting experience because, like I said, I went to a really good high school. I've had the opportunity of leaving Nigeria so many times, traveling to different places on vacations, things like that. So I didn't really have a culture shock when I moved here. But it was little things like that where we don't use blue books in Nigeria. There's really no way I would have known what a blue book was. But professor said it. It was something you should know. I didn't. And there was this, oops, I feel kind of ashamed. Now, when I think about it, I don't know why I was self-conscious or ashamed. Like I really could have just said, what is a blue book? Maybe people would have laughed. Who knows? Who cares? Maybe some other people were also wondering what a blue book was, but nobody was able to muster up the courage to ask. I really don't know. But the point being, when you're in somebody else's space, you have to be the one to adapt. That's how I feel to 
whatever it is that they say, whatever it is that they use, what their own terms are. It makes it easy for you to survive and easy for you to thrive, really, right? If I didn't know what some of these terms were, if I didn't know how to find my way around, how to adjust, how to adapt, I would have been struggling. I probably would have been lagging behind, maybe failing, maybe having a hard time. But that would have been my fault because I, it is on me to adapt to where I have gone to. But in the case of the whole black versus white talk, America is for everybody. The United States is supposed to be for everybody. It's supposed to be everybody's land, land of the free. Everybody has a right to be here as far as if you were born here, if you're a citizen, however you got here legally. So why do black people have to conform to the way white people talk and express themselves? Does that indirectly mean that corporate world belongs to them and black people are the outsiders, so they have to be trying to fit in? The way I was trying to fit in, okay, I'm a Nigerian in America. Do black people feel that they are not supposed to be here or has the workplace been set up in such a way that it's not comfortable, it's not home, it's not what we're used to. So we have to now emulate what it is that white people are doing or the standards that white people have set just so that we fit in. If that be the case, what is the solution to that? How can the workplace become neutral? How can black people claim their place at the workplace? And this is a very loaded topic. I think it's something that I have to do in bits and segments because there's different facets to it, right? As far as the way we dress for women, your hair, so many other things, right? That are considered professional or unprofessional. What is considered professional hair is not your regular natural African hair that has not been tainted with color or chemicals or relaxers or perms. What is known as just not even know what is just natural Afro-African hair is not what you see as far as weaves and weave-ons and other kinds of extensions. But that is what is considered professional, the, the straight hair, even though that is not a black woman's natural hair. So like I said, this is a very multifaceted conversation, like so many dimensions to it, so many angles to it. But I don't want to get into the hair part today. The main part is about the double speak. You know, what do you guys think? Should black people reclaim their place in the workplace? If so, how should that be done? Should they feel comfortable enough to speak however they want to because that's how they were raised, that's how they've been speaking? Should they be able to use their own expressions and terms? Should white people be the ones trying to learn how to communicate the way black people feel comfortable? Or what is the neutral ground? What is the way where everybody feels happy, everybody feels comfortable, everybody feels like they belong? Let's continue this conversation on Instagram. I'll make a post about this particular topic and then you can leave your comments on there and we can go back and forth. So I mentioned Hush Puppy the first time. And if you are African, if you were Nigerian, you might even be none of those things and you have already heard about him because it's been trending in the news for a while. In summary or in a nutshell, Hush Puppy is just a sideshow circus clown. I don't know how else. To explain these guys, this guy is absolutely ridiculous. So let me give you a bit of his backstory. First time I heard about Hush Puppy was in 2014. I only remember because I remember the apartment I was living in then with one of my close friends. And it was just him posting, you know, this affluent guy making money, spending lavishly. And I was thinking, like I said, I love to research stuff. It's actually really bad, guys. Like, I'll be sitting down eating maybe cereal and I'll be reading the box. I'm 
that's how <laughs> I am about reading information, knowing what's going on. Not because I'm a nutrition buff or anything like that, but I've just had that habit since I was young. I read a lot. I ask a lot of questions. I do a lot of research. I just like to know. I don't like to be in a situation where I don't know anything about something. If you're talking to me about something or we're having a conversation about something and I don't know, I will say I don't know. I'll ask you questions. I'll hear what you have to say, but I'll still go research it. I'll still go inform myself. That's the kind of person I am. So when I heard about Hush Puppy, my interest was piqued. I was like, okay, who is this guy? What is he about? Let me find out more. So I tried to do some research and I realized that I couldn't find any kind of grass to grace story. There wasn't any, this is who I am. This is who my family is. We've always had money and I'm just spending it now. Or I work hard. I started a business. My business is successful. Or I went to school and now I have this great job. Or I discovered some, I don't know, scientific thing or tech thing. And now I'm living off the proceeds. Nothing like that. I was like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. But major red flag, right? And then. A few, I'll say maybe a year or so later or two, his name came up when I was having a discussion with a new friend, somebody I had met newly. And she said, oh, he's back. Okay, then let me backtrack. Then I found out that he was, had just left Malaysia. He was in Malaysia, was still in Malaysia, or had just left Malaysia, one of the above. So I knew there was a connection to Malaysia. And I know that a lot of people who go from African countries to Malaysia, particularly Nigerians who go there, Unfortunately, not everybody, but a lot of them um, peddle drugs. They, you know, import or sneak in drugs or whatever, and that's how they make money. So on one hand, I was thinking, hmm, that might be his story. On the other hand, it could be fraud, scams, money laundering, which Nigerians call 419. So when I say 419, if you're not Nigerian or African, that just means money laundering, fraud, scams. That was one of those two things. That's what I thought of. It was one of those two things. Anyway, fast forward to when I was having a conversation with this new friend. And she said, yeah, somebody else she knows, the person's husband went to school in Malaysia and he knew Hush Puppy from there. And that's really where he started. And yes, it was fraud and scams that he was into. And he was defrauding a lot of Asian businessmen. So from Japan, from China, those other countries. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I mean, not surprised, like I said, because I couldn't find any detailed or good information that made sense as to how he had this amount of money and how he was spending so lavishly. It wasn't even that bad then. I think then he was in Nigeria. And he would just post himself like maybe in a bathtub, soaking, you know, just with fruits and living the good life and give like motivational quotes saying, guys, this could be you. I remember when I had nothing. I remember when there were days when my family, we couldn't eat because we were so poor. Now look at me. I can eat whatever I want. In general, that's a great testimony. That's a great, that's great motivation, right? That will make you feel, you know what? I can work hard. I can get to this point. I can achieve. My background doesn't have to define me. Aspire to perspire, all those other really good motivational stuff. But for me, once again, it's a thing of you've never said how you made this money. You've never shown any kind of this was the path I took. So how are you motivating people when from all indications the money is ill-gotten well? Anyway, I don't know him personally, so why do I care? Wasn't big on social media. I wasn't on Instagram or Facebook or any of those things. So I didn't really follow his life as far as that angle. But once in a while, he will post something exotic or extra and somebody will send it. So over the years, his profile started growing. People started knowing more about him. He started becoming like a big thing on Instagram, posting more and more lavish, you know, things, designers all the time, Gucci this, Gucci that, you know, Louis Vuitton, private jets, living in a penthouse in one of the most expensive hotels in Dubai. He had moved to Dubai at some point and was just living lavish, buying Rolls Royces and Bentleys and 
literally just as if he had a mint at home and he would just print whatever amount he wanted or maybe a genie and he would just ask for whatever he wants and it would appear. But with time, of course, even more people started to have that. This is not clean money. This guy is into 419 fraud, scams. What, you, what would you call it? How is he living so freely? Why is nobody arresting him or looking into him? What is going on? His money just seemed to be exponentially just growing, 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 growing. And he started tormenting people on social media. Coming on social media, making fun of people, talking about his haters, posting, this is me, this is what I'm doing, this is who I am. And a lot of celebrities, like African celebrities, footballers, uh, musicians, um, those acting would go to Dubai, politicians go to Dubai and they would hang out with him. They would go to his house or he would take them out to dinner. They would go partying, post pictures. It really was just this whole, he just became a celebrity. And for me, the nagging thought was always, why are people not bothered about the source of his wealth? Why are people not asking themselves, how did this guy make it? What is he doing? His money is not clean. Why are we as people in general, worshiping the things he's able to get. Because everybody likes wealth, right? Everybody likes affluence. Everybody likes, you know, a show of success. But when that is gotten illegally, it's all crap. I don't know. That's me. Anyway, he's kept, like I said, profile kept rising. He was just, you know, doing big things, quote unquote, in his own world. What I figured out or what I thought or what the main discussion was, is that he was in Dubai because they don't extradite to like the US or, you know, other places. So it was like a safe haven. There are a lot of people who have been into shady things, who have run to Dubai, or who have moved to Dubai, or who are operating out of Dubai. And it's because it's a safe haven. Even if I do get caught kind of thing, they're not going to extradite me to the United States or the United Kingdom or, you know, maybe Australia. So what's the worst that can happen, right? Maybe get deported back home to Nigeria, which if he does, no offense to the Nigerian judicial system, but it's crappy. You can pay your way out of a lot of things. So for someone like this with such a huge profile and so much money, he could most likely would pay his way out and never have to serve any term and just, you know, kind of go into hiding. So I think that's what gave him the boldness because it's a thing of I'm thriving where I am. What's the worst that can happen? I get sent back home. I have to settle a few people to take care of me and I'm good. I bounce back. I keep on doing what I'm doing. So there's no fear of any kind of retribution or prosecution or anything like that so if not why not anyway sometime in the beginning of june pictures start flying around videos start flying around news starts flying around that hush puppy was arrested and in the videos that were shot they were shot by i think some nigerian people african people who live in dubai and say that a ton of police cars descended you know on the apartment complex where he lives he was taken out but in the videos you don't see him it's just a whole bunch of police lights and you know what looked like i don't even know if there was a helicopter or something outside and all of that so on one hand it was like oh wow he's finally been arrested on the other hand it was like how do we know it's him there's nothing to prove or show that it's him dubai police didn't make any kind of announcement stating that he had been arrested nothing like that so people were saying they kept trying to call his phones his associates people who knew him kept trying to call his phone kept trying to reach him kept trying to go to his apartment nothing so that was the word that hush puppy had been arrested a few weeks ago, Dubai police does this extra, did I just say the, I don't even know what I just said, this extra release where they're like, yes, Hush Puppy was arrested by us. And it wasn't just a regular press release or, you know, coming out to talk. It legit was some kind of 007 promo 
I don't know what to call it, trailer for the new James Bond movie. I kid you not, guys. It was like some kind of CSI, CIA. It was a lot. So I woke up that morning. So many people had sent, forwarded me the video on WhatsApp. Even my, I think my dad had put it in our family group chat. And it was one of these like night vision goggles, information on the screen, you know, pictures zooming in and out. It was very high tech. I'll give them that. Anyway, they announced that Hush Puppy and I think 12 or 13 other of his associates had been arrested in some sting called Operation Fox Hunt. You know, I like that code name. You know, it was very, what's the word? Mysterious and very James Bond-esque, you know. Anyway, let me share some of the statistics with you guys as far as why he was taken down, who he was, what he really was about. He had... 1,926,400 victims. That's people who had suffered as a result of his frauds and scams and people who he had duped. He had 800,000 emails of potential victims. At least 1.6 billion dirhams, which is the currency that is used in Dubai. I don't know what the exact exchange rate is, but I believe they said it was over $400 million. That is what had been stolen from people through various scams that he and his friends had committed. They found 21 laptops, 47 smartphones, 15 memory storage devices, and five hard disks. There's no reason why, even if there were 13 people that were arrested, why do 13 people need 21 laptops? 47 smartphones, really, guys? Really? That's almost three phones for each person, if not four. Four phones for each person. Doesn't make any sense. 15 memory storage devices, 5 hard disks. Amongst all of them, probably mostly Hush Puppy, 13 luxury cars, guys, that were worth 25 million dirhams. Then they found cash on them that was worth apparently almost $40 million. Come on, come on, come, come on. This is doing the most. And that's what the problem is. Like, who does that? Who in there? That's why I said this guy is a circus clown. How did you think you would never get caught? How did you think you would never get away with it? And guys, let me just tell you something. If you don't know me personally, I'm not in the garbage endorsing business. No, I don't like rubbish. I don't endorse it. I don't promote it. This is pure, utter rubbish, garbage. It's retarded. Doesn't make any sense. Who lives like this? And a lot of people have said, you know, he did too much. He was greedy. That's why he got caught. Why didn't he, after he did maybe the first few rounds or whatever of the scam, got some money, why didn't he now go legit, use that money and put it into a real business? You know how when you watch mafia movies or when you hear about the mafia and all this stuff, that's what they do. They maybe sell drugs, um, sell human beings, human trafficking, all this other horrible stuff, and then try to legalize the money. Maybe, I don't know, open a laundromat or a restaurant or something. So it looks like, okay, clean money. This is where my money is coming from. That's how they're able to put the money in the bank, all of that. So people were like, why didn't Hush Puppy do that? Why didn't Hush Puppy go legit after he made his first few, I don't know, millions or whatever? I was talking to my brother about it and he said, well, think about it. To these people, your average nine to five is trash, right? They go out, they go to the club, they spend, I don't know, $20,000, $100,000, $50,000, ridiculous amounts of money just on having fun, popping bottles, VIP sections, looking good, feeling good, because, I mean, they're not, what are they really doing? They're not really, quote unquote, working for the money, right? They're using brain power for bad things and making the money. But you, on the other hand, who has a regular nine to five, you have your salary, you have to go into work, do your 40 hours, take crap from your boss, literally just 
suffer yourself pretty much. You're not going to go to the club and swipe your card for $30,000 for bottles of champagne. It doesn't make sense. No. So these people are used to such an extravagant lifestyle. They walk into a store, they can have the store closed down, buy any and everything that they need. There's this picture of Hush Puppy where he was in this um, like Gucci or LV. I think it was a Gucci. I don't know what it was supposed to be, a coat of some sort. It looked like a rug, all these Persian rugs, very, you know, Persian rugs that have like so many colors and it's like orange undertones and green is the main color of the rug. Literally looked like he sold a, I don't even know what to call it because I don't know if it was the fitting. I don't know if it was the style. I don't know if it's his, if it's his body shape. It was just horrible. But anyway, it was a designer, whatever, coats, trench coats, jacket, whatever you want to call it, that was worth, I don't know if he said it was $5,000, you know, dollars or 6000 I don't know, some amount. So things like that where something might not even necessarily be nice or cute, but just because you can, right? You just go buy it and purchase it. Remember that technically this guy was a prisoner in Dubai, not prisoner as far as being in prison, but he couldn't really leave. So at some point, Interpol and, you know, whoever else was looking for him, which is why he's gone to Dubai to kind of hide out. So he can't really go that far. He can't really do that much. Probably in Dubai, yes, he's free, you know, to roam about. So I think that's why his social media presence became so big because it was a thing of, if I'm spending all this money and nobody's seeing it, am I really spending it? You know, people have to see, people have to know. I need to make this, you know, a thing. So someone like that who has already built up that kind of profile, how do you expect him to now go into a regular job? It's not going to fly. There's no way. He's going to be making what to him is chicken change. Literally, a, this is what I will spend in the club. How can this now be what will be my, you know, yearly salary or monthly salary or, you know, whatever the case may be. It's not going to work for those kind of people. They have already gotten so used to a certain standard that doing a regular job is a joke to them because in doing their frauds and scams, click computer here, there, after a three-week surveillance or one-month surveillance, boom, you get, you know, $20 million, $40 million. Then you expect them to go into a job, have to put on corporate clothes, go into a job every day, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., only to make what, $90,000, $60,000, $100,000. That's a joke to them. So clearly, that wasn't something that he was going to do. Other people were saying, why didn't he do what his name says? Why wasn't he hush? Why wasn't he quiet about it? Why wasn't he doing it under the radar? And that's why I explained to you guys earlier that he was at that point where I can't really go to as many places as I want. People can't really see me physically. So social media is where I'm going to show myself. Social media is where I'm going to let people know, let maybe people I grew up with know that, yes, I was nothing, now I'm something. And I think it's also that poverty mentality of I suffered so much when I was growing up. My parents couldn't afford a lot of stuff. So now that I do have it, the world must know. I need to do and overdo and overdo and make up for what I think I missed. But remember that poverty, yes, technically it's a physical state of not having money or living, you know, in horrible conditions, not having financial means to get yourself out. But a lot of times poverty is also a mentality. So physically and financially, he had gotten out of that space but his mind was still there. His mind was still not mature, hadn't, I don't know, amassed whatever physical wealth he had amassed, the knowledge, all of that stuff. If he knew that he was doing illegal stuff, it didn't make any sense at all to be so flamboyant. Now he's been arrested. They used, all obviously, his social media as part of ammunition to say, well, this is how he was living. All these things were clearly paid for by money he obtained through illegal means, blah, 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 blah. So when he was arrested, it turns out that it was joint efforts with Dubai police, Interpol, and the FBI. 
So he had defrauded a law firm in in New York last year of nine hundred and something thousand dollars, so almost a million dollars. So I think that's how the United States got involved. Because people keep saying, "How come now? It's so sudden. He's been—I mean, not hiding. He's been in plain sight for years, living lavishly. Why didn't anybody do anything about it?" I think because he was wise enough initially to know that if you mess with the U.S., <laughs> they'll take you down. But with time, with popularity, I think he got careless. He got bolder, maybe was looking for a bigger challenge, decided to mess with the U.S. And unfortunately, here he is. This is his downfall. Another reason I was giving people for why he wouldn't just do a few heists and, you know, go legit is because in life and as human beings, I think especially for guys, that competitive nature that, okay, I've surpassed this challenge. What's the next one? If you think about people who say like a Usain Bolt or someone who is a professional athlete, right? If you set a record, your plan or idea is to keep setting better records. So even if he won the 100 meters at the Olympics this year, in the next four years, not only does he want to win again, that's Usain Bolt, he wants to uh, cut his time, right? So do better, break your own record. Same thing, people who run maybe marathons or long distance or people who work out, oh, I lifted, you know, I don't know, 20 kg. You, you don't just say, oh, I lift, I lift 12, 20 kg now, so that's fine. You want to set another challenge. Okay, can I see if I can lift 25? Okay, what about 30? What about 50? What about... So I think it's the same thing for people like this. There's an adrenaline rush that comes with them planning, doing all the mastermind work, and actually succeeding in defrauding all these people, seeing the money hit their accounts, being able to touch it in cash, being able to spend it as they like, getting all the accolades and praise and worship from people on social media. So of course, that adrenaline, that rush, that excitement, Makes them want to do, okay, what's the next thing? Chase the next job, hit the next hurdle. So for him, it was probably, okay, I keep doing this, I keep doing this, I keep doing this. America is the big leagues. America is the big boy. Can I actually do something and get money out or defraud, you know, somebody in the United States or the United States government or whatever? But I think unfortunately for him, he set that challenge. He did beat the challenge. He did get the money. He did, you know, but as it would, turn out that now became his own undoing and everything started to unravel. Dubai has no allegiance to him. Yes, he was living there. Yes, he has pumped in tens of millions of dollars into the economy, but he's not their citizen. They owe him nothing. And when the going got tough, (laughs) Dubai got going. Handed him over to the FBI. He was brought into Chicago. So now he's actually in the United States, in Chicago, Final destination will be Los Angeles. He will be facing charges on money laundering. Also, in the indictment that was available online, they, you know how when you're going to do a project, you have all your projects lined up, say, for the year, and then you start tackling them one by one, or you're working on different ones simultaneously. So when they said they had 800,000 emails of you know, potential victims, already past victims, these people prepare ahead. They know who their target is going to be. They start doing research. They start working on them. They start, you know, planning and prepping what is going to happen. So in getting all those laptops and getting all that information, the police, Dubai police, FBI, Interpol was able to see even projects they hadn't executed yet, but were planning to. And amongst them, these people were planning to defraud a Premier League club of $126 million, like think about 100 million pounds. Mind-blowing, guys. Literally, these people don't stop. As far as being resourceful or keeping their grind on, you have to give them that. But these people do not stop. A whole Premier League club, 
And everyone was saying, why didn't they release the name of the Premier League club? We would like to know what club it is. I see why, like confidentiality reasons, and it will just ridicule the club. It will just make such a mess of things. It will make them a target because people would now know, okay, this club has some loopholes, maybe in their security or there's areas where they can be hit. Investors, fans, it will be a mess. But just to show you the length and breadth of what Hush Puppy was doing, the reach that he had, outrageous, ridiculous, like I said, just a sideshow, circus clown. He was his own, un- brought about his own undoing, brought about his own downfall. Do I feel bad for him? No. Like I said, I don't condone rubbish. I'm not in the garbage endorsing business. Some people, however, are leaving comments on that post about Hush Puppy saying, may God see you through. See you through what? Maybe your prison sentence, I hope, but I hope and pray that these people are not wasting their prayers on this man, hoping that he'll get out, hoping that he'll be acquitted, hoping that he'll never have to serve a jail term. What is wrong is wrong. To the victims, to the people he was oppressing, to those he was giving a hard time, to the institutions that he robbed, what is wrong is wrong. I believe he deserves the utmost punishment. Apparently, he's facing up to 20 years max in prison. I hope he does get the 20 years. I heard he's employed the lawyer that defended Michael Jackson in his first, um, I guess the case that he brought about him, child molestation case, and also defended Chris Brown when he beat up Rihanna. So that's supposed to be a high-profile lawyer, a good lawyer. Great for him. Everybody deserves legal counsel. But I do hope and pray that he gets convicted, goes to jail, he serves the maximum time to serve as a deterrent to other people. So he'll be the scapegoat. His associates, his accomplices, his co-workers, those who are scammers in training, wherever they might be, to see and know and learn that you cannot make a living off defrauding other people, off bringing sorrow and despair. Do you know how many people have gotten defrauded, lost their life savings and killed themselves because they couldn't handle it, they couldn't cope, they couldn't figure out you know, how, where to go next. People have lost their jobs. Companies have folded. All because what you want to illegally obtain these things and live a lavish life and oppress others on social media. No, that's absurd. He needs full punishment, maximum punishment, face the law. So, yeah, if you didn't know about Hush Puppy, you can research him, you can search, you can Google, it's everywhere. You'll see what I'm talking about. What do you guys think? My Nigerian people, my African people, you know him, you've been known about him. What do you think? Are you happy that he got caught? Do you think he should serve the time? Do you think people who get scammed deserve to be scammed because they are not smart enough or because they are also greedy? And there's different levels to this scam of a thing, right? There's like romance scams, there's internet like um, business scams where with the emails and so on and so forth. So in his case, it wasn't romance scams, it was business email scams. What do you guys think? What's your opinion? What's your verdict? If you were the judge and jury, would you sentence him? Do you think he should serve time, but not the full 20 years? Do you think he should not serve time at all? Do you think they should dig a hole under the jail and put him under so he's carrying the entire jail on his head? What do you think? Let me know. I ban some motivation on Instagram. I'm going to create a post about Hush Puppy and you can leave your comments under. Share with your friends, family, tell a friend to tell a friend. Tell your enemies. If you say you don't have enemies, you're doing something wrong because the Bible says that God will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. If you don't have enemies, who is God preparing a table before you in the presence of? Ooh, ooh, ooh. See what I did there? So yes, tell everybody. Let everybody know. 
your co-workers, church members, people at the grocery store, share the word, share the podcast. Let's continue this conversation on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. Until I come your way next week. Bye.